So there's a, a popular caricature that exists within uh, wider culture and even indeed within some quarters of the Christian church where some people will claim that the Old Testament presents a God who's focused on wrath and judgment. And the Old Testament pays little attention to the love and the grace and the redemption of God. They would say, you need to go to the New Testament to see the love and the grace and the redemption of God. But you know, as we've been working through numbers, it's really struck me that that claim does not hold up. Because as we're working through numbers, we just keep on seeing how gracious God is to his people. How loving and how redemptive his purposes are for them. They keep on grumbling. They keep on rebelling. They keep on committing evil and wickedness. And God is patient, is kind, is gracious, is forgiving, is abounding in love. And it's been truly breathtaking. Well, as we come to this passage, once more, we're going to have the grace and the love and the redemptive purposes of God impressed upon us. And our response to what we see of God should lead to us giving generously to him. Now, I know some of you haven't been here for our series in Numbers, so so I need to do just a little recap Numbers 18 only makes sense if you understand it in connection to what has happened in the two previous chapters. In chapter 16, God's people rebel. The heart of the rebellion is this. They do not like the leaders that God has appointed, Moses and Aaron in particular. And the guy that heads up the first rebellion, Korah, really says, aren't all of us holy? Aren't all of us priests? Like, can't all of us just be able to go in temple and offer sacrifices and hear God's voice. And so God says in response to Korah's rebellion, okay, let's try it out. Come tomorrow morning, bring censers, fill them with incense, you and all your companions, Moses and Aaron, you do the same, and let's see who God's appointed priests are. So they did it, and God acted in his just judgment and showed that Moses and Aaron were his appointed priests. And that Korah and his companions were rebels. They were swallowed up by the ground and consumed by fire. And then in chapter 17, God vindicated Aaron publicly. You are my chosen priest. You and the Levites. Through his staff that budded, blossomed, and produced uh, almond fruit. And it was a picture, it was a sign pointing us forward that one day through the great high priest, great blessing would come to the people. But chapter 17 ended, and if you've got your Bibles there, just glance back to the verses of it. It ended with the people of Israel responding like this. Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, shall die. Are we all to perish? So God's people, they've got the message. They've got the point loud and clear can't play games with a holy God. You can't just appoint yourself as priests because you will die. But even though they got that point, they hadn't grasped that God was so wonderfully gracious that he'd provided a means by which they could draw near and not die, but live, thrive, and flourish. And that gift was the priesthood. 
And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 32 under two headings. Verses 1 to 7 under the heading, The Gift of Ministry. And then verses 8 to 32 under the heading, The Gifts for Ministry. So the gift of ministry, verses 1 to 7. And I should just point out, I'm not going to work through these verses 1 to 7. I'm going to work through these verses 7 to 1. So backwards rather than forwards. Now, are you good at giving gifts? Do you know what it requires to be a good gift giver? Thoughtfulness. Understanding. You need to know who you're getting the gift for. You need to have that understanding of how the gift could be a real blessing to that person. God is the greatest gift giver. He understood his people were terrified, fearful to even come near him. And God's saying, guys, the reason I established the priesthood was because it's my gift to you so that you can draw near to me and not die. So if you look down at verse 7, that's what we see in the middle of it. God says, I give you your priesthood as a gift. God's people had understood that they couldn't approach God casually, blase, but they hadn't grasped that God did want them to draw near him through his appointed means, through the priesthood who would act as mediators, who would go into his presence and offer their sacrifices and bring about the redemption and the reconciliation that was necessary. Now, we've been saying all the time as we were speaking about the Old Testament priesthood, it's really just laying the foundation for Jesus. Jesus came into this world as the great high priest, the one who is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus came to accomplish for us what all the Old Testament sacrifices only signified but never accomplished, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came so that we could have access into the holy presence of God. And so as I stress the point that God gave the priesthood as a gift... You and I must not lose sight of this. The greatest gift God has ever given is his son. His one and only son. The great high priest who mediated on our behalf. Who gave himself up as a once and for all sacrifice. So that we could be redeemed, forgiven and restored to relationship with God. Now... You know, the problem is, sometimes you and I receive gifts, and we don't appreciate them. Have you ever been given a gift, right, and it's sat there for ages, and you've not made use of it, you've not taken the time to appreciate it or enjoy it? God's people were given the priesthood, and instead of enjoying it, you know what they did? They grumbled about it. They complained about Moses and Aaron. Instead of enjoying God's gift, they... They moaned about it. And it's really interesting that the Old Testament priesthood ultimately foreshadows Christ's great priesthood, but but the Old Testament priesthood also points us forward to elders, under-shepherds, ministers. So when you get to the New Testament and you pick up Paul in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this, When Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and Christ gave gifts to men. And what does it say in Ephesians 4 was Christ's gift to men? He gave this. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. 
Christ's gift to his bride was, I'll give you ministers. I'll give you elders. So as awkward as it sounds for me to say this anyway, Dick, Peter, and I are God's gift to you. We really are. He he loves his bride, and so he has given people who are called to pray, to pastor, to teach, and to preach. And it's so easy that we can be infected with the same spirit, isn't it? Of coring the rebellions, the, the rebels. It's easier to grumble than to say thank you and to appreciate. Now, that's not to say any of God's ministers and any of God's leaders are above criticism or above reproach. But it is to say you're supposed to see us as God's gift. For your good. Now, as I said, we're working through this backwards. The first thing God wanted his people to know, verse 7, was that the priesthood was God's gift to them. The second thing that God wanted his people to know was that God appointed them. God selected them. God chose them. So look at verse 6. And behold, I have taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, Aaron. So the Levites, they're a gift to you, Aaron. Aaron, given to the Lord to the service of the tent of meeting. So the Levites, who were, were Aaron's cousins, all of their job was to serve in the tent, to guard it and to guard Aaron and his sons. But they were never allowed within the veil. That was for Aaron and his sons alone. So verse 7, and you and your sons, you shall guard, you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and all that is within the veil. You shall serve. Now, why did God want to stress that he chose them, he selected them, he appointed them? Because in the rebellion, that was the problem. Korah and his companions thought they could appoint themselves to be priests. And you can't. You do that, you face God's just judgment. Now, when you go to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, which is really just a, a sermon on the book of Numbers and the Old Testament, in Hebrews chapter 5, we read this in verse 1, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifice for sins. And verse 4 says, and no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So everybody who's a priest is a priest at God's appointment. Verse 5 of Hebrews 5. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming the high priest. But God said to Christ, you are my son. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So just as God has appointed his priests and Aaron, so too did God appoint his son. Now, you might say, what's the significance of that? Well, so what? Well, here's the thing. The Old Testament priests like Aaron, they were sinners. But they were selected because God wanted to set them apart as a holy people for the holy work. Christ, who God chose, was sinless. 
Hebrews describes them as holy, innocent, separated from sinners, exalted in the heavens. And that is because Christ had to be able to offer himself up as the once and for all sacrifice. Able to save to the uttermost so that we could all draw near to God. So again, do you see the pattern? Old Testament priesthood points us to Christ's great high priesthood. But here's the thing. There is an application for ministers and elders in the church. I am not a minister at my own appointment. Now, you could go to churches, non-denominational churches, independent churches, and you could ask them, how did you become the minister of this church? And he said, I put my hand up one said, I'll pastor this church. And I took it on. In our tradition and in many other ecclesiastical traditions, you can't just become a leader in God's church. So in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, when they were appointing apostles, do you remember how they did it? Through prayer and careful consideration. And so, when I, when I felt a call, I felt God calling me internally to ministry, I, I went before my elders. And he said, let's examine this call. Let's pray about this. Let's test to see if you've got gifts, but more importantly, let's test to see if you've got the godly character. And then after that, there was another process. Let's send you to seminary and see if you, you, you can study and if you've got the patience and if you'll submit to the to what we ask of you. And then after I finished seminary, they said, We're, we, your local elders, are now going to put you before the presbytery and ministers and elders will examine you. And even when I passed that exam, they said, we'll give you a license so you can go preach the gospel, but the only way we'll ever know that you're truly called of God is if there is a congregation out there who will call you. That is, a congregation who will pray and ask God for a minister and they will call you to be their minister. A minister in our tradition only becomes a God-appointed minister at his ordination, the laying on of hands. And so Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, as one appointed, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. God gifted his priesthood. God appoints his priesthood. Now, verses 2 and 6 tell us what the roles and duties were of the priesthood. The roles and the duties of the priesthood were they were to be concerned with sacrifices and offerings. And the Levite priests who were given to Aaron were to help by looking after the Aaronic priesthood, and by looking after the tent of meeting. You know what's really interesting when you read the Old Testament? Ministry is never one-man band. It's always team. And, and, and that's a really important thing. Ministry here in LC is not me. Ministry is elders, deacons, and all of you. It's never one man It's always God's people. We are the body of Christ, all with different functions and all with different parts so that we may be built up into Christ. Now, the duties that they were given was to offer sacrifices and to guard the temple so that no one would come near it and die. But in verse 5, we're told that the reason for all of the the rules and duties was so that God's people did not experience the wrath of God. Now, now, now get this, right? The reason Aaron and his sons and the Levites were serving the temple 
was so that God's people would never receive his judgment again, so that they would actually be recipients of God's blessing and grace all of their lives, so that they would live and flourish. You go to Hebrews and you say, what was the role? What were the duties of Christ when he came? Well, Hebrews tells us very explicitly He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Here's his purpose, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here's Christ's purpose. Here's Christ's rule and duty to turn the wrath of God away from his people so they could receive the grace and the mercy and the blessing of Almighty God. He came so that he could lead many sons to glory. He came to open up the new and living way. He came so that his people could live and flourish and enjoy God's abundance. Old Testament priesthood, Christ's priesthood, what about ministers? What about elders? Why are we given? What's our role? What's our duty? We need to be really clear on this. Called by God, elders and ministers, to pray to pastor and to preach, full stop. If you read through scripture, our calling is to pray, pastor and preach. Now, for what end? Ephesians 4, Christ's gift to the church is to give ministers, teachers, under shepherds, to equip the saints for work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, that we all might, might attain maturity in Christ. God's gift of us to you is for your good, for your formation, for your living in Christ and thriving in Christ and flourishing in Christ. Appointed, gifted, called. Now finally, and this is the point that in the study this week always, always sobers me up to the calling that God has given me. Verse 1. God's ministers and elders are accountable. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons in your father's house, you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. Here's what God says to them. If there is any violation among God's people, you know who we're coming for? You know who God's coming for? The leaders. Yeah, you've got great privilege. Yeah, you've got great responsibility. But hear this. You are going to be held accountable. For all that happens with regards to the holy things of God. Now, why, why might God impress this upon his people? Because here's, a, here's what happened with Korah and his companions. They looked at Moses and Aaron, and, and, and honestly, they got envy. Here's these guys, and they're in charge of everybody. They get to go be on, behind the veil. They get to minister to God. They get to hear God speaking to them. They get to do all the upfront stuff envy, and then you combine that with the sin of bitterness, cocktail for disaster. And so God says, okay, you see the privilege of the position? I want you to know this. With that privilege comes great responsibility. And with that responsibility comes great accountability. Now, now let me say this. Jesus' younger brother, James, said this. Not many of you, not many of us should aspire to be teachers. Because those who are teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep, keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Dick, 
Peter and I, on the day of judgment, will give an account for how we kept guard over you. God's gift of ministry to his people is so thoughtful, is so understanding, it's so that his people can live and thrive and flourish and grow. But he says, listen, there's such a good gift to you that they can't just do what they want. They're accountable to me. And we'll be accountable for the calling that God has given us. Are we praying for you? Are we pastoring to you? Are we rightly handling and dividing the word of God as we preach and teach you? Now, you receive a thoughtful gift from someone. It's perfect. What's your response? What's the most appropriate response to when you receive a good gift? To say thank you. To the giver of the gift. So so don't confuse us. You don't need to say thank you to Dick, Peter, and I. You need to say thank you to God. And and this is where verses 8 to 32 lay out the gifts for ministry. And, and, and when you make this connection, you'll see something brilliant. All the gifts that were to be given to the priesthood were primarily gifts that were first and foremost given to God. So people would bring their offerings... And their sacrifices to God for sin, for guilt, for grain offerings, wave offerings. It was for God. God would get, as it were, half of it. And then the priest would get the rest of it. But know who the gift was being given to. God. So in verses 8 and 9, we see that that was Aaron's gift. In, in verses 12 to 19, we see that Aaron and his priests, they were to enjoy not just the gifts of the sacrifices, they were to enjoy the gifts of the firstborn of the land, of the cows, of the animals. Truly remarkable. But you may ask yourself, why, why were they to get so much gifts? Why, why were they to be so, much, so blessed? Because God had said to them in verse 20, you get no inheritance in the land. All the tribes get into land in, in the promised land that was flowing with milk and honey. They all could go and say, we're setting up camp here. This is our portion. Those who are called to service, your gift is me. You get to serve me. I'm your inheritance. Not only Aaron and his sons were given gifts, but also notice the Levites were to be compensated for their work. And so in verses 21 through 32, that's what it's all about. And it's really interesting, you don't miss this, those who were given from the tithes were themselves to make a tithe to the Lord. And they weren't just to give any part of it, they were to give the best part of it back to the Lord. So, so that we see this, right? God is so gracious to his people, he provides a means for which they can come near and not die. God is so gracious to his servants, he provides a means by which they can live and look after their families. So we're Presbyterians. And that means that when you called me, and historically this would happen at a minister's induction, they would stand up and they would say, and on this day we are, we are ducked the Reverend Andrew Longway to this congregation and he will be given X amount of money in his stipend and he will be given a manse, meaning a house. And the purpose was this. The minister is to vote himself to the spiritual things of God and the earthly concerns are looked after from the offering of the congregation part of it because 
the other aspects of our offerings today is that we give to the poor. And we give to the work of mission. And, you, and I don't want you to miss this, that it, the tithes that the priests were to give back to God, the Levites were to give back to God, their tithe going back to God was actually for the poor. Read about that in Deuteronomy. And just stop for one moment and think about this. Why might God say to his people, I want you to give to the poor? Because it's God's way of teaching us grace. Like this is how, this is how good God is, right? How wise he is. See, when you see poor people in London, beggars, home people begging, they're undeserving. You might think in your head, and I hope you don't think, they're a nuisance. They're not a nuisance. They're a picture of you. You don't deserve God's love. You're a poor sinner. You deserve God's wrath. You deserve to be cut off from the land of the living, to be rejected, to be ignored by God. But you know what God's done for you and I? He's given us what we don't deserve. He's lavished us with his love. He's crowned us with the riches of his grace. And so God says, I want you, my people, to use your giving, your offering that you bring to me, to give to the poor so that you can understand how gracious I am to you. I give to you undeserving people for your good. So make a practice of giving to the poor. And we don't just give to the poor. Offerings that we give, we give for the sake of mission. We give so that the kingdom may advance, so that God's purposes may extend in this world. But listen, where are our gifts first and foremost? Who are they given to? Me? No. Given to the poor? Primarily? No. Given to mission? No. Primarily, when you give of your offerings, you're giving to God. Now, here's where we can get into the detail and we're, we're finishing with this. How much should you give? Old Testament, 10%. 10% of everything you had. How much should you and I give to God? Well, the New Testament has no percentages. In fact, the New Testament does not tell you how you are to give. The New Testament tells you how, how much you are to give. The New Testament tells you how you are to give. You are to give in Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, joyfully and cheerfully. It's not about how much you give, it's about the way you give. But if you do want a percentage from the New Testament, <laughs> I was looking at a few people who gave. Zacchaeus. When he received the grace of God in his life, Christ welcomed him and he wel- when, he, when he welcomed salvation into his life, what did he give? 50% of all that he had. And he was a really wealthy man. To the poor. And then he promised to pay back fourfold on anyone he'd wronged. The widow who gave her offering, what did she give? 100%. Two mites is all she had, two mites is all she gave. Two mites is all that she gave. What about Acts 2? When the Spirit came down at Pentecost, leading up to Acts 4, they gave so there was no need among them. People gave of their lands and their houses so there was no poor among them. So, so how do you give? You give generously, but why do you give? You give because you've been given so much. What have you been given? Well, he who was rich became poor so that through his poverty, Jesus, you might become rich. You weren't redeemed by silver or gold, but you were redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. 
And if you're not a Christian here, this is the most amazing thing about Christianity, is that God says, I want to save you, and I'm going to save you through my son, and he's given his life so that you can know life and you will not experience death. And, and, and it's often someone who's new and becomes a new Christian who understands the reality of grace so much that they understand, well, if God has given me his son, that costly gift for my salvation, the most appropriate response is for me to give him all of my life. Every bit of it. And, and to give to him is, is a joy. Now, now let's feel the application of this because we, we, we so often in church, right? We don't talk money, we're British. Americans have no money, they'll talk about, but we don't, right? Let's talk about money for just one moment. If you want to see if your money is viewed as a Christian or if your money is viewed really through a non-Christian is, if you think it's about holding on to your money and what you've got, then you've missed it. Your money's got a hold of you and your money's your God. But if you see your money as, as God's money and as his gift, and you, you appreciate what God has done for you in Christ and how gracious he's been to you and how much he's gifted you, access into his presence, he's given you elders to steward for your soul, he's given you so much. Your response is to say, God, have it all. Have as much of it. God, I, I will give you generously. 10%, no chance. More than that. You're worthy of that. We as God's people should be the most generous people on the planet. Now, just as I wrap this up, maybe you could go home and do your own homework on this, right? First Corinthians chapter 9 says, taking the Old Testament principle of giving to the priesthood, says this. First Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 14. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? So the soldiers go to war and they pay for it themselves. No chance. They're paid for Who plants a vineyard without eating of any of its fruit? No one. You plant a vineyard, you enjoy its fruit. Who tends a flock without getting some milk? You get the principle, right? Do, do I say these things, says Paul, on human authority? Does not the law say the, the same thing? Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their fruit from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is too much. is it too much if we reap material things from you? In the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, so he takes that passage and he applies it and he says you should give for the sake of your minister's stipend and, and, and house so that you can proclaim the gospel. But that's just one part of it. And you go over and you, you study Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And you see that he takes the same principle except he takes it applied by Jesus and he applies it and says, now in light of what Jesus has done, what should you give to God? And I think we should just end there. What do you think is a fitting response to a gracious God? I think as God's people, we need to learn to give generously, not because we're trying to give to men, not because we're trying to give to mission, not even because we're trying to give to the poor, although all those are good things in of themselves, but because actually we've come to appreciate the grace of God in our lives. Those who get grace give generously. And those who don't get grace will be stingy. Let's pray.
God, we are conscious of how your word speaks into every area of our life. And in this passage, you've revealed to us that you are the most incredible gift giver. You gave us your son. So that we could have forgiveness of sins. So that we could have access into your presence. So that we could be your people. And so that you would be our inheritance forevermore. You've given us elders and ministers to shepherd us and to guard us and to pray for us and to pastor us and to preach the word of God to us. And it's only appropriate that we come and we say thank you to you. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the gift that is ministry. Thank you for the gift that is forgiveness. Thank you for the gift that is prayer. Thank you for the gifts that you give us. And all these gifts we do not deserve. And so we pray that as those who have received so much from your generous hands and heart, that we would respond appropriately. God, we, we have to be honest that one of the, the idols that takes a stronghold of our life sometimes is our money. Instead of us holding on to you, we hold on to it. Instead of us showcasing that you are our portion, we show that money's our portion. Forgive us, have mercy upon us, but teach us how we might give to you for your glory and for the good and the advancement of your kingdom and for the help and the care of the poor. And we pray this in your son's glorious and precious and powerful name. Amen.